Trigger warning. This podcast discusses themes centered around emotional, physical, and sexual violence. While the stories of the survivors are meant to be inspiring and informative, listener discretion is advised. If you are struggling with any of the aforementioned issues, links to resources can be found in the show notes of today's episode. Then he started to undo my shorts, and I remember, you know, I, um, I resisted. I did what I could as an 11-year-old, um, but he sort of brushed me aside and, and kept going. And, and I, mem- I remember at that point, that was a really sort of fundamental point where something broke inside. You know, it's a, in, uh, lots of times when I've reflected on that in the years since, it's clear it was a really pivotal moment psychologically. Hi, Survivors. I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. Yeah. Woo. We're really enthusiastic today. Uh, it's because I just drank a double espresso. Oh. That would have added to the enthusiasm. As a New York Times article just popped up on my iPhone that said the majority of Americans are sleep deprived, I am proud to say that I woke up this morning, I checked my aura ring stats and i slept for seven hours and 15 minutes straight through no melatonin oh. no nothing just pure i'm exhausted and i slept straight through the night <laughs> i'm very proud of myself so maybe that's where the enthusiasm is coming from tara <laughs> i love this energy right now but i'm really excited for my scholarship for podcast evolutions yes. it's gonna be in la the last week of march yeah the last week of March. I did go a few years ago when I was starting my podcast, which was at that time, Moving Past Murder. And it's a lot of fun. I met a lot of really cool people. It's a lot of fun. Yes. And you met Jamie Rice there. I did. I did. I met Jamie Rice. I met the people from Murder With My Husband. I mean, I met a lot of people there. I met Andrew Huberman, which is probably the person that I was excited the most to, to meet. I would get starstruck with him. I would be like, Hi, I'm Tara. I experienced trauma. Um, I would want to be on your podcast. <laughs> yeah, I see him at my gym a lot. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. He goes to work out with you. and He doesn't work out like, with me, but... He doesn't? No, does not, not work out with me, but he works out at the gym. I see him every <laughs> once in a while. Yeah, I work out at Gold's. I see like the celebrities all the time. It's, it's no big deal. No big deal. No, no big, big deal. deal. I'm just making friends everywhere. <laughs> no, it's a whole thing. Uh, you'll have a blast, though. It, it's cool. It reminded me of, I think my impression, I had never been to a podcast festival before, but what it reminded me of, of was like being at a film festival. You, like, you had this like sort of camaraderie, and okay. it, it, was, it, it was very cool. It was a lot of fun. Um, I got to meet a lot of people. I, I, I saw people that I hadn't seen for years that, had, that were in the film business that got into podcasting because obviously, you know, this is post-COVID or sort of at the tail end of the pandemic. So, yes. you know, they have celebrities that'll be there, like celebrity podcasters, right? Yes, Amy Poehler will be there. Yes, Amy Poehler. Parks and Recs. Yep. Yes. The year I was there, Will Ferrell was there. Um, oh, shut I up. I met Will Ferrell too, but he had a lot of handlers around him. I can imagine. He was just in the Barbie movie, you know? He was just in the Barbie movie. Yes, it's a fun thing. Learn as much as you can. Take what resonates, leave the rest. You'll have fun. Yeah. Yeah, and make lots of connections, right? Yeah, I mean, you'll have a lot. There's like a lot of podcasters there, right? So you can get on the people's shows, which will be great. 
Um, but uh, you know, yeah, you'll meet people and it's fun. It's a good time. You'll see a lot of products. I mean, I I would be interested to see like what the AI products are that, that they're offering. To strap like a GoPro to me and just film everything for you. Well, you just bring your phone. I mean, I'm sure <laughs> okay. they'll have because they're having it at the JW Marriott, right? Yes, they are in LA. Yep. LA Live, yeah. yeah, yeah. Parking, park across the street. It's like fifteen bucks. You mean you don't want me to park at your house and then you give me a ride every day? Nope. You don't want to drive in the LA traffic? (laughs) Nope. I'm good. I'm good. But yeah, the key is to park. There's a there's a little corner parking lot directly across from the theater and from the um because you don't want to park at LA Live because that's a that's expensive and it's also a nightmare to get in and out. But if you park at the lot across the street, you just boom, you just get right on the 10 and you're just boom. It's great. Okay. I'll take your instructions. <laughs> That's my Los Angeles podcast evolutions advice for you. <laughs> Perfect. I'm going to need it. And also, I'm really excited because you met Jamie there. And then Jamie is having a meetup with Generation Y this weekend. Yes, she is. Yes, she is. They're doing a little tour because I think they're in like Fresno. So they're, they're doing a little California tour. Yeah, no. And I'm so excited to see all my friends. You might be there. You might not be there. You said it depends on your juice cleanse. Yeah, I guess you're just getting handing out all my personal info. <laughs> yes. So my birthday is next week, February 28th, next Wednesday. And um, I am <clears throat> in preparation for said birthday. I have decided to gift myself a juice cleanse from Pressed Juicery. Oh, uh, you're doing that one? I am. I'm doing a. I'm doing a sort of like a. I would say a four day, you know, so like a half day and then three full days and then another half day juice cleanse. Yeah. Oh, okay. Diva so, Deb has done that. Yeah, I'm. I've never done one before. Okay. Um, I've done the master cleanse. I've done those other those other types of cleanses before, but I've never done a straight up juice cleanse. I drank mostly juice. Uh, but this will be an interesting experience. So I don't know how hangry I'm going to be on the first day because the the juice arrives on Friday morning. I'm going to do celery juice starting on that day, um, but also eat like soup or whatever, like very light meals. I've already started sort of toning down my consumption of food, food, you know, and and eating more, you know, like smoothies and stuff like that to sort of, t- you know, sort of temper my stomach a bit but um your yeah. appetite yeah to try to curb my appetite a little bit and okay. um quell my appetite may be the better way to s- describe it uh and get into the juice cleanse so i'm excited we'll see well, i'm just doing it for health stuff i just got my blood work done and there's some things i want to correct i mean I'm, I'm pretty healthy but i was like ah, i want to correct some stuff i want to go back to eating vegan i'm excited about that so Oh, nice. I love that for you. And I also did the health thing too. Got my test back. My vitamin D was low. So I need to just take more walks. Yeah. And then doctor, my vitamin D was not low, but it was lower. And he was like, well, it's also the time of year. So don't sweat it too much. Okay, perfect. Well, speaking of the sunshine, Australia is really cool. And we have a guest (laughs) today from Australia. Yes, we do. Ironically, and I was telling my um, my boxing friend at the gym this morning, uh, we he he travels all the time. And I was like, where are you going to? He's like, oh, I haven't really gone anywhere. He's like, I'm going to Texas. I was like, okay, that doesn't sound fun. Um, 
but he uh he's going to texas and because he's always going to like exotic places so he's like there's nothing wrong with texas but he's always going to like he's like oh i was just in bali or i was just in frankfurt in munich or i was in brazil like he and he randomly will go, will go and see concerts he's like i want to go see black rebel motorcycle club play but i'm going to go see them in prague <laughs> <laughs> not okay. not in not in LA. I want to go see them in Prague, or you know. So he he does these random things, and so he's like, "I'm going to Texas," and I was like, "Oh, okay." He's like, "Yeah, it's for a work thing." And I was like, "Oh, okay, I get that." But um, I was telling him how uh, my Apple memories are popping up all these photos when I was in Australia five years ago of like the beautiful beaches and all this stuff, and it's uh, I'm like, "Oh man, I might need to take a trip back there soon at some point." Yeah. No, we should get booked out there for a show soon. Yes, that sounds like a great idea. And so our guest today is from Melbourne, right? Yes, he's from Melbourne. Well, he lives in Melbourne right now. He lives in Melbourne right now, but he grew up in New South Wales, NSW, which is you know, Sydney, which is where Sydney is, right? So um, he does not have the happiest of stories, but um, you know, it, it's it's heavy. Uh, you know, as we've talked many times on this program that we unfortunately have a lot of survivors that are survivors of uh, physical and sexual abuse. And he was in the Boy Scouts and he suffered abuse at the head of at the hands of his scoutmaster. Collier, you didn't say his name. Oh, geez, you're right. Who is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's Matt Barker. And he's got quite the story. So, Tara, why don't we get into it? Yes, let's get into it. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm Matt Barker, and my um, my story um, starts when I was about ten years old. And when I was ten years old, I joined the local. Well, actually, when I was about seven, six or seven years. Uh, sorry, seven or eight years old, I joined the Cubs, you know, which is the the younger version of the Scouts. Both of my older brothers were already members there, and they had gone through the Scouts. Um, and when I turned 11, uh, I went from Cubs into the Scout group. Scouts was like a very central part of our families, community groups. You know, lots of families knew each other through through the school and through Scouts. And um, so it was a very social sort of connection facility. And so when I joined Scouts, um, there was two Scout leaders that ran that, that group. Most of the time, sometimes there was only one there. And pretty quickly after I joined, the, the, one of the scout leaders um, had offered to help me uh, on a weekend um, preparing to award, earn some um, awards. You know, they, have, they give you badges. You know, scouts, you'll see they get all the badges they put on their sleeves, which they get for awards for doing all sorts of different things like setting up camp or outdoor survival or that sort of stuff. And he'd offered to help me um, to get ready to earn some of those awards. And um, he came around on a um, Saturday morning to pick me up to go and do that. And, you know, like 
they were very trusted people within the community and and um you know my parents were completely trusting of of um the scout leaders and you know they they let me go off with him when he picked me up he took me back to his um he lived in a caravan you know sort of a back block behind some houses there was a back block that had a number of caravans living in it i suppose it was a low cost sort of way of living it wasn't like an official caravan park anyway he took me back to his caravan park um and i was on my own with him and pretty quickly when we went in inside we he, we sat on his bed and we were watching uh hey hey it's saturday it was called a program it used to be on every saturday morning cartoons and kids and we started watching that and pretty quickly he sort of started uh becoming quite physical like he started through tickling and that sort of thing and ended up with me sort of lying across his lap and um uh, and then pretty soon he started um masturbating me through my shorts and um and then he started to undo my shorts and I remember, you know, I um, I resisted. I did what I could as an eleven-year-old, um, but he sort of brushed me aside and, and kept going. And and I remember, I remember at that point, that was a really sort of fundamental point where something broke inside. You know, it's a in, in lots of times when I've reflected on that um, in the years since, it's clear it was a really pivotal moment psychologically um and then from there it proceeded on um to um him making me masturbate him and then over these this then became a regular thing he would use lots of reasons excuses within the scouting movement to pick me up i started doing a gang show which is a you know a um a theatre production that the scouts put on um, and I'd enrol in that. So he would pick me up and take me that. He was also enrolled. So on the way there or on the way back, he'd take me back to his caravan or after camps, he'd take me drive to the back behind the, sc- the scout hall. A- Any time that he could, there was lots of excuses to get me alone and the, the, the activity progressed and became um, sort of more graphic and you know after it'd been going on for maybe a year um you know on occasions then there was another scout that he would get at the same time and he would have us both doing things to each other and doing things to him and i became aware that this was also happening to another scout um, because another scout told me um on a scout camp and i also became aware of a, a fourth person at the time um so it was happening super regularly and to to a to a group of um boys at least and this went on for uh, about three years um i you know so it started when i was 11 and it stopped sometime when i was 13 or possibly 14. so um and at the time like yeah you know i was too terrified to say anything about what was happening and and it would be quite horrific sometimes you know when you're you're sort of you're you're literally going from a situation where you're being forced to perform fellatio on a 
fully grown adult when you're an 11 year old kid and then literally within 10 minutes you're being dropped back at your house and having to go back inside to your full house full of adults and siblings um, and just behave like there's nothing wrong um, and just to um hey movers did you know that one in five americans has learned a new language on their bucket list if you're one of them make 2024 the year you finally check it off with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works designed by over 150 language experts Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are your passport to speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Real people, real conversations, that's the Babbel way. Babbel's tips and tools are not just lessons. They're companions in real-life situations. The approachable, accessible content is delivered through conversation-based teaching, ensuring you're ready to shine in the real world. Before Babbel, I couldn't imagine effortlessly ordering food, asking for directions, or chatting with local merchants, and all without consistently checking a language app while I'm on vacation. But Babbel makes it easy, providing the practical skills you need for real-life scenarios. Struggling with pronunciation? Babbel's got your back with speech recognition technology, helping you perfect your accent and sound like a native speaker in no time. Hola. Hola. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 50% off a one-time payment for a lifetime Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash collier. Get 50% off at babbel.com slash collier, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash collier. Rules and restrictions may apply. Sort of really just swallow down all of the emotion and um, and everything that you're feeling and the disgust and, you know, your, um, fear and all that stuff. And so, you know, it was a pretty, it was a pretty traumatic few years without any ability to give vent to any of that. So you end up, you know, holding a lot, a lot of stuff inside. Then when I was about um, 21, I was 21, I did some personal development courses, sort of vaguely new agey. They were quite popular in the, you know, mid and late 80s. And I did sort of a, a weekend course with this, this group. Um, and on that course, I disclosed my abuse, which is, in hindsight, not a way I would recommend anyone do it. There's sort of, you know, there's risks <laughs> with doing it that way. It's not, yeah. you know, there's not trained people. For me, it was... It worked out well. It was, and that that sort of disclosure was enormously liberating and freeing for me. And you know, I was on a pretty much a big high for quite some time after that. The mistake I made at that point was thinking that that was it. You know, I, I, I that was the t- trauma dealt with. And of course, now what became clear then, you know, over my particularly my late teens and my 20s um, to my early 30s, um, you know, I ended up with a lot of problematic heavy drinking and drug use. And it wasn't until in my early 30s that I really sort of started to see patterns in my behaviour and patterns in relationships that had gone wrong that I sort of realised, oh, yeah, there's, there's a lot more to, to, to work with here. And in my early 30s, I managed to... Um, reduce drinking and, and, and get rid of the sort of problematic drug use. And once I'd done that, 
that actually gave me enough sober time. Like I, I very rarely before my early 30s was I either sober or not suffering from a hangover or a come down of some sort, you know. I still managed to work quite well. I've always been good at still, you know, functioning most of the time. But once I did actually started to spend a lot more time sober, it became really aware to me that I suffered from depression and that I had really quite bad anxiety. Um, and I started to see much more clearly the sort of um, problematic patterns in, in my thinking. And so it wasn't until my sort of late 30s that I started to actually think about what I had to do to sort of take some control back, I guess. Um, and it was really in my 40s that I first time actually started really focused therapy. You know, I went to a therapist and said, hey, this is what happened. I think I need to do some work around this. Um, and now I've done that for many years and made, you know, heaps and heaps of progress, which has been great. And as a part of that process, um, I always had, I always was had the feeling in the back of my mind that it was unfinished business in terms of I wasn't happy that he was still out there. It was clear to me that he may well still be offending. So as a part, during that process, there was a, a, a royal commission on in Australia into um, the response of institutions to childhood sexual abuse. And so I decided to, um, I could get an hour to make a report with a commissioner. And I did that. Um, and then they passed on at my request the details to the police and the police started a formal investigation. That legal process then took three years, um, but they did great work. And because I was able to get in contact with some of the other boys that I knew had been abused um, and um, three of them joined, um, they were actually quite happy to be contacted. Um, uh, and then because we had four victims... Um, it was a pretty overwhelming case, which is really difficult for these sort of cases. Um, but the perpetrator pled guilty. So um, it was great that we didn't have to go through a trial. We just we had a sentencing hearing where we went and made victim impact statements and um, the prosecutors made statements about why he should get a certain sentence and his defence made statements. Um, and then we had a sentencing hearing, hearing and he got sent off to jail um, and he's, he's in jail now. Um, and then at the end of that process, I started civil litigation against um, scouts. It's the scouts in New South Wales um, uh, for their failure to provide a safe environment for, um, for children, which, you know, in, 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 in researching for the case, it became very clear, and they admitted in the case that, that they have known about this risk for a long time. We, we found um, letters going all the way back to Baden-Powell, who started Scouts, literally in about like 1904, warning all commissioners worldwide of the threat of, of this sort of behaviour by Scout leaders. So it's a problem they've been very aware of, and until mid-90s, really did nothing significant to protect against. That process has been, is still ongoing and has, has been, for me, much more challenging than the, than the criminal process. 
um, because it's where you come against all the tactics and strategies and um, intimidation that organisations will use against individuals when they're trying to shut down this sort of case. So, um, you know, we had a very, you know, my case did get stopped for a while there by a, the, the, the scouts won what's called a permanent stay. And it's this legal remedy that's supposed to only be used very occasionally, very rarely in the most extreme circumstances where the, where the courts feel that a, a fair trial cannot be held for some reason, normally because of a lack of witnesses or evidence. In, in a very surprising and shocking judgment for most of the legal people I spoke to, my case got ruled, it got stayed, um, even though we had a perpetrator alive and he had pled guilty to the, um, all of the crimes and was willing to testify. Um, so it was a bit of a, a shock. But these stays had been getting used in a lot of cases, um, of you know, child sexual abuse cases. But then, very fortunately, just in the last couple of months, one of these stays in another case got taken all the way to our high court, the federal high court, the highest court in the land, and they ruled that all the courts that essentially, this is my layman's version of it, they ruled that the lower courts had been getting it wrong and that they shouldn't have been giving out stays, that um, the parliament had intended for these um, cases to make it to court. Um, and so basically that judgment um, has made it far more likely that my appeal against the stay will succeed. Um, so, you know, I'm in a much more, I'm in a much more confident position at the moment. So, so things are progressing well, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a long road. Um, and that pretty much gets you up to today. Wow, that's a lot to go through and thankful that you're here fighting for what's right. And I'm sorry that you had to go through any of those experiences. Yeah, thanks. It's, it's, it's I mean, the, the going through it, particularly the legal, uh, the, the criminal case, for me, it was a really necessary step um, that I always knew in the back of my head I had to do, like so much about um, that crime um, for the, the victim or survivor is about um, loss of agency, you know, like, at, at, and that, you know, that, that thing that, that broke inside me, that was really what it was my control of myself realize that, you know, at 11 going, oh, I, I don't have control of myself and I don't have a say. And so that, I, I was very fortunate in the way that my criminal case unfolded. Um, many people have a much tougher time in the criminal system than, than my case did, primarily because we had four victims. But for me, that was a really... Um, big step in me recovering that agency and the sort of civil cases the, the next step in that in sort of really asserting my you know my sort of uh yeah my agency and over the, the situation again and reclaiming my own um control of events amen to that for sure taking back that power is is a big part of that process of healing mm. you know 
It's one of the things I'm very grateful for in my circumstance with my father is being able to 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 get justice for my mother. You know, mm. it, you know, what's interesting is when you first started talking about the scouts, like you know, we here in the states, I I, I just associate with the Boy Scouts or the Scouts just being associated with the United States, like America, right? Like this is like a, a uniquely American problem. And as you're unfolding it, I'm like, oh no, this is a big problem everywhere. Oh yeah. And it, I, I guess I didn't realize that the scouts was that was, is it very, is it really ingrained in, in Australian culture? Like it is here Absolutely. in the States? Absolutely. I mean, cause like the, the scouts, I mean, it started in UK originally and then it pushed out from there. Um, and the Scouts, yeah, so it, it's been big here right since the beginning of the 1900s. And it really is. I mean, actually, it's been, in recent years, it's been growing very rapidly as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a big part of Australian culture. And, uh, uh, you know, as part of the research, um, you know, I looked at, practices and experiences in um, the States and in the UK. And the story is the same, you know. The, I know the chief executive of Scouts in, 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 the, in the States at some point, he was on the record as saying, yeah, this has been a problem in Scouts for as long as Scouts has existed. You know, it's, um, so it has been, I mean, you think about it, if you, if you create an organisation that focuses on just boys and brings in young boys and puts them into the control of one or two adults and lets them take them off. It's a magnet for the wrong sort of people, unfortunately. Like, I think the scouting idea is a good one, you know. Like, I, I think it has a capacity and, and for many people it is a really positive thing. But it doesn't take much um, thought to understand that it's going to be a magnet to the wrong sort of people and you know people talk about oh they didn't know as well at the time well, they did they did like people since year dot have known if uncle barry's a bit sus well, don't leave the kids alone with uncle barry you yeah know? so yeah. people have known common sense if you have any concerns about any adult then you don't leave kids alone with them and um, they have known in Scouts that it's been a problem since the beginning. So, you know, they really were, um, I think, you know, guilty of just um, really uh, completely insufficient, setting up insufficient um, child safety measures. Yeah, I can, you know, I was in the Scouts. <laughs> I can remember having one, you know, had become a foster parent. And I just remember very odd scenarios but i was never a, a part of that you know what i mean but uh i yeah. just witnessed some behavior that i thought was questionable did they have some like you know initiation type ceremonies and it, it was just a vibe i don't know how to yeah. say it but it was i i felt like when i went into the to the next level of the scouts like the boy scouts from cub scouts to boy scouts yeah that was when i met some of the younger um you know, the younger scout leaders that were like, you know, early twenties, yeah. you know, were the older brother types. And that was, I remember 
going to that scout meeting and I was sort of known in my city for, you know, what had happened with my family. But I remember mm. very specifically being very uncomfortable with the people that I met that were the leaders. And I was like, I don't want yeah. to be a part of this organization. I never went back <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> because yeah. it just did, it, it had, it just had a really weird vibe. And, um, you know, is there a strong church affiliation there as well with the scouts in Australia? Yeah, look, uh, so very affiliated with the Church of England. And I think that affiliation was stronger earlier on, like because I know through this, some of the properties are owned by the church that scouts operate on. Because um, I know in some of the civil cases, they've been suing the scouts and the Anglican church together. And in some cases, it's just the scout. So there obviously is still financial and organizational crossover there at some point. I don't really understand it. but You know, one of the things too is, uh, you know, you had sent some links when we had booked you on the show. <clears throat> and I was watching a, uh, uh, um, I, I think it was 60 Minutes Australia doc, yes, docu. Yes, Oh, no, um, no, it was um, Four Corners. But I didn't see you in the first part of it. I don't think you were in it until much later. Not till the last 10 minutes, yeah. Yeah. But there was another gentleman who was, and I just, and and his life is, and, and not to say that you haven't been impacted, but yeah, yeah. it seems like you've, <laughs> we were just talking about you going to the Australian Open and you've had, you were talking about yeah. having a good career and you were talking about, most importantly, which resonates with me, and I think which would resonate with our audiences, you had had a substance and alcohol abuse problem mm. that you know you worked into your lifestyle, right? And I, I've been alcohol free for over three years now. And I think when we when we have things like that in our life, when you're a functional and successful adult, you don't really pay much mind to it. But when you mm. take it out, then you start going, oh, well, there's things that you notice, right? Mm. So your ability to get a harness on that at such a young age and then really sort of take back that power with yourself and be like, okay, I have to work on myself and now I'm going to be proactive in healing and, and getting justice and, and, and promoting reform. Because I saw this other man, his, his life was destroyed, just destroyed yeah. not only by what happened to him, but, but, but the, by the toll of, of substance and alcohol abuse and just, it's so heartbreaking to see that happen. It, it, it is, and and I um, I, I've I've wondered often about, you know, what is it that makes a difference? You know, what the way that the trauma shows up for 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 different people, and it's and it is so varied, and um, you know, the um, and, and one of the reasons that I really felt um strongly about progressing the criminal case and the civil case was that I knew that I knew that even if it's unpleasant I've got the capacity to do it like I know I can do it and I know other people and, and one of the other victims in my case I know he he just wouldn't have the personal capacity at the moment um, the psychological stability to go through the rigors of the civil case because it's, it's you know it's horrible and you know at points where i have been literally thinking i was going to lose everything and be bankrupt so i thought like you know if 
if the people who don't feel able to do it don't, then no one will, and 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 organisations just get off scot free. But the other point that's interesting to me is, um, or has been a frustration to me is, you know, one of the things that I got very good at because of my response to that crime as it was happening, stretched over three years, was I got very good at compartmentalising. You know, when when you literally have to, within three minutes, go from that horrific situation of pain and trauma and then just lock it all down and look like everything's okay and keep carrying on, you get very good at it, you know. So, you know, and after doing that for three years... I got very good at not showing emotion when I didn't want to and I got very good at carrying on. Now, that has helped me. That's one of the things that's helped me still actually have a degree of, you know, to have a successful career. But it comes with a cost. So you can't do that. That that strategy doesn't work all the time because the depression and anxiety is building up and it needs release at some point. So for me, how that played out was after I got, you know, my sort of drug and alcohol stuff under control in my sort of early 30s and became much more aware of the anxiety and depression, I I, I, I couldn't keep, I, I was getting more senior jobs, but the anxiety that came with them was too much. So for me, I've, the last 15 years, I basically have every second year I don't work because I can sort of do that compartmentalization, I can do a reasonably big job and I can do it pretty well, but as the months go on, I can feel the depression, the anxiety, and it ends up getting... Now I know before it gets too bad, I pull back and it'll take three to six months to get back onto an even keel and then I'll say, look, before I go and start that again, I'm going to have some months feeling normal-ish. But because people always see you when you're functional and seemingly normal, yeah, they assume that there's nothing wrong there, you know, and it's like it's played out in them, in even with doctors, you know, like if I'll go in and see a GP or a psychiatrist and because I don't deliver things with a lot of emotion, I'll go and say, yeah, look, things are really bad at the moment. My anxiety is really high and I'm quite depressed and it's really bad. And they'll write, oh, yeah, normal affect, you know, it's, and they sort of think, oh, it's not so bad. But for me to come in and sit and say it's really bad means it's really fucking bad. Like what's really going on inside yeah. is really bad. But it's just not how I am when I go into public with people, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel that because of trauma, do you feel that trauma people need creative cre- careers, maybe not the nine to five for them and stuff? I think... Definitely sometimes, like I, particularly over the last year, I've met so many people, you know, in the survivor community here and and, and so, and, and the, the real eye-opener for me, something I sort of knew but has become really clear is just the massive variety of ways that trauma shows up for people. And, and sometimes it, events that when you hear them talked out sound very similar, yet the response has been opposite, you know. So uh, my big thing is, like, you can never tell just by 
looking at someone or even just talking to someone on a superficial level, what's going on for them. And, you know, I've had this discussion with some of the medical profession I've been dealing with this year is, you know, that some of their models really fail to recognise trauma when it's sitting in front of them. So I, I think, um, yeah, it's just... It's, it's really difficult because there is such a wide variety of how trauma can show up and what different people will need. I think it's really about listening to individuals and letting them talk out what, what's going to work for them. But, you know, I, I, I don't have any magic answers. Well, I think it's important to hear from every survivor their point of view so that we have an understanding of, you know, does it affect someone's ability to work a nine to five? Does it affect mm. someone's ability to be in a certain place and have to stay there during a certain time? You know, mm. for me, I need more creativeness or like a creative outlet to go and move and explore and work my trauma through that in a sense, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and that like, it, it, is that because you for you does that feel um is it this is it the being s sort of still in one doing one thing that's difficult or is it i think it's the fact that i have to pay attention to everyone in a group setting where right. i have to you know i'm you know the water's dripping from the water hole or whatever it's called um the water dispenser the, the, the water faucet <laughs> yes <laughs> the water hole you know but so i'm paying attention to that and then someone's having a conversation over here chatting you know then someone's clicking on their keyboard and then i'm paying attention to that so it's like all these little things going on where i'm like oh 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 no please don't <laughs> So I think for me, I'm just too hyper vigilant to be in that type yeah. of situation. Yeah, yeah. Now that's interesting. Well, there's a sensory overload to it. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. Yeah, I, I mean, because de definitely hyper vigilance is, is probably pretty common for a lot of people who've had lots of different types of traumas, and I, I certainly um, hyper vigilance is a big one for me. And it is, I mean, it certainly makes it hard to relax. Yeah. So I was just curious if anyone else had that happen to them. <laughs> but it's good that it you aren't noticing that and so that you don't have the same answer as me um, and that you're able to work <laughs> in that aspect because <laughs> trauma is different with everyone, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean... I I definitely like, I mean, I do, as I was saying before, I play around with a bit of music stuff and um, music production. And I also like cooking and they're probably sort of my two creative outlets. And what I like about those things is that, is that when I'm doing them, it takes, I get quite absorbed in them. So my hypervigilance drops away because I'm just focusing on, that activity and so it probably is really escape you know it gives me a bit of escape from all of the other stuff and the anxiety and the you know when everything hits yeah 
This concludes part one of our two-part episode with Matt Barker. Can't wait for part two? Please subscribe to the Survivor Squad Patreon to receive exclusive early access to all episodes. On that note, Survivors, I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. We'll see you guys. Bye. The Survivor Squad Podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please consider supporting this program by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Survivor Squad.